0: say, like, oh, this is the very best, and, like, all English literature in the 18th century was the very, very best. Yeah, okay, probably. Like, or, like, in Scotland, or during the Enlightenment, or in Europe? Yeah, probably, because the conditions were such that people were free to think uh, in ways that they hadn't before. But other societies also had great works. I am open to reading those, and I am open to teaching those. But I am not open to, like, then needing to sort of downplay everything else because i think and this is an old-fashioned idea but i think we're all human beings <laughs> and therefore you know the cultural heritage of humanity belongs to all of us
1: welcome to the new flash podcast the podcast you deserve my name is ricky orpike and joining me once again is my good friend mr jonathan astro john how's it going yeah good I'm, I, I got no complaints so, we, we, we sort of have a, a, a new mission here, or maybe a side hustle for the podcast. And that is, we're, we're trying to make the left a little bit more glamorous. We have a very glamorous uh, guest on today. We do. Uh, we Miss, do. Miss Ashley Frawley.
2: Ashley Frawley is definitely, uh, I think, I don't think it's offensive to call someone glamorous. Is it? Like, because I know we're in very touchy times. Like, if I say, oh, you're so
1: glamorous, but yeah, does, is that know. a sexual aggression? or? I think. Maybe. maybe It could have been. Or maybe when people actually did care about hashtag Me Too, it would be. Oh, but that we as No one cares about that anymore. We beat Me Too. We did, yeah. Oh, well, that's good. That's a win.
2: You know what? We don't celebrate the wins enough. Uh, we, we beat Me Too. That's done with. But anyway, Ashley Frawley, definitely... Uh, a, a wonderful speaker, intelligent, inc- incredible uh, talent, and yeah, y- y'all are going to love
1: it. Now, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is, we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show you liked, or perhaps one that you didn't. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, uh, you can send us a little cash via the the Buy Me a Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. Now, on with the show.
2: Ashley Frawley, a senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at Swansea Univ- University in Wales, joins us. She is also a contributing editor of, uh, of Compact. Her published books include Semiotics of Happiness, Rhetorical Beginnings of a Public Problem, and Significant Emotions, Rhetoric, and Social Problems in a Vul- Vulnerable Age. Ashley has also uh, recently launched a podcast with Sublation Media, uh, which we'll ask her more about. Ashley, welcome to The New Flesh.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So I'd like to ask you a question uh, that was posed to one of our previous guests, Dr. uh, Jason D. Hill, who is a professor at uh, DePaul University. Ashley, have you decolonized your syllabi?
0: That's a really funny question um, because I teach the origins of sociology, so I used to. I don't. Who knows? Maybe it's been decolonized now. It's, the module is given up to someone else. Um, but I used to teach Intro to Sociology, and um, I would teach its origins in the Enlightenment, um, and 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 you know the sort of build up or development of thought. You know, before the Enlightenment, and then the Enlightenment, and then sort of different ideas that led to. The development of science and this idea that well, we can apply science to solve all these human problems, all these medical problems, these biological problems, surely we can, you know, apply science to society and solve its problems. <clears throat> and this becomes quite problematic, actually, <laughs> because human beings are not like animals. I mean, we are animals, but we're different in really important ways, which I think tend to be forgotten, oddly enough, today. Um, but, So I used to teach this uh, and I had a meeting with somebody who said, you know, students these days was management type, you know, they really want, they're really pushing for us to decolonize our curriculum. And I just want to, you know, make sure that you go through your materials to make sure that you have a good balance and diversity. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like you can have a blind spot for certain things and this kind of nudge can help you to kind of think, well, maybe I should look for different kinds of materials that will add maybe a different flavor to what I'm doing. I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> but I just thought it was really funny because I'm indigenous, right? And they, I'm Canadian First Nations. Now, my, I'm, I'm obviously like mixed with white, but like <laughs> pale as a ghost. But uh, I just found it really funny that this white British woman is sitting there telling me to decolonize my curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> and I said that to her and she looked extremely uncomfortable slammed the bi- binder shut and went, "Okay, let's talk about something else." <laughs> so I didn't have a lot of pressure on me to really, you know, take that agenda any further. Um and I find the whole decolonization um I don't know what to call it. Paradigm? Project Project paradigm. I mean, project makes it sound more coherent than it, than it probably is. But <laughs> This, this whole decolonization, I don't know, trend um, is a bit strange because it, it works like a lot of these things do in the public sphere where because they are kind of disorganized, they, they lack a kind of coherence, but at the same time, they demand adherence. Um, so if you push and you say decolonization, I mean, if I take that really seriously, like radical decolonization... There's a paper called "Decolonization is Not a Metaphor," and 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 the authors are like, "Oh, well, why does that make you feel uncomfortable?" Well, it makes me feel uncomfortable because blood and soil nationalism doesn't really have a good history. <laughs> um, and then if you kind of say that, like, "What do you want? Like, you want ethno states?" Uh, and then people go, "Oh, come on, it's just a metaphor, right?" <laughs> it's always this kind of <laughs> this kind of slipperiness to it. So anytime you push back, people go, "Oh, it's not it's not that big of a deal." But then if they want to be really radical, they'll say, this is a really, really big deal. Anyways, in my experience, it has not been that big of a deal. It's not been a massive kind of push on what I teach. And I've not felt the humongous amount of pressure. Um,
2: But Ashley, Ashley, what do you think of the idea of, because you you said you've had to teach the enlightenment and and you've had to obviously engage with some. I haven't had to, uh, I've
0: chosen to. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, that's my. Let's see, you are careful with your language, and I shoot from the hip. So I, I, uh, I absolutely, you've chosen to, and so you obviously have uh, engaged with some pretty uh, foundational texts that that y- you know you think are of value. How, when you're asked to, to decolonize something, how how uh, is it possible to ever bring up meritocratic arguments? Is it ever possible to say, like, I can only give the example of. You know, from uh, English literature, for example, like when someone—if I met someone who tried to tell me that, you know, Hamlet wasn't a masterpiece or something, or that there was something com- comparable to that from anywhere in the world, I—I I, 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 like that I should be teaching to, uh, you know, a first year or whatever. I would probably say, well, I'd have to read it first. So I'd say it'd be better be better on its face. You know what I mean? It better be as equal or greater to Hamlet. So, I mean, what do you think of that argument of of, of being able to say, well, no, this text is is pretty amazing and we should be grateful for it.
0: Well <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think education should be about teaching the best that's been written. But you know, I'm I'm open to this, you know, that's been not been written, but that's been thought and said and so on. I, I'm open to the idea that, that I have blind spots. Like I can't know everything. And I, I do welcome a push to kind of think about other ways of doing things. But this can can kinda of lead to some rewriting of history. It's not super helpful, so you get this idea. Like you know, people will talk, and this was a and it you know starting to become an issue even twenty years ago when I was an undergraduate. Where my I remember my lecturers looking extremely uncomfortable and saying, "Look, I'm I'm very sorry to tell you, I was studying anthropology, uh, anthropology and sociology. and double majored, and <laughs> uh, there's no such thing as a matriarchal society. There are matrilineal societies, but there are no matriarchal societies." And he was looking very uncomfortable saying this, you know, already at that point. It was almost like you had to make something, you had to big up women in history. I okay, think there's nothing wrong with the fact that like different societies, ha- there's an enormous social and cultural difference around the world. And human beings are not slaves to custom or slaves to biology. That's a great thing about us, but there are certain things that have pushed societies to develop in particular directions. Um, and we uh, have the great benefit now of not being determined, our society uh, is freer pro- probably than any other society has ever been, to question these kinds of determinisms. But people in the past were not able really to do that. And so just by virtue of the the structure and the necessity of the, the material conditions of these societies, women were really not able to have that much power. Uh, and you know, they were not able going forward into the future, to get education to the extent that men were. It's absolutely the case that the contributions of some women were downplayed. And people will say that the even sociology was coined by um, a woman. Who knows if that's true now? <laughs> it's so hard to like trust this kind of like rewriting history because you kind of go through history, you plunder history, and you look for evidence of some obsession that we have now that maybe wasn't there. And so then you can wind up Rewriting history. So I, it, it, I I hate these kinds of being invited to adopt these extremes. You know, like I don't need to say, like, oh, this is the very best. And like all English literature in the 18th century was the very, very best. Yeah. Okay. Probably like, or like in Scotland or during the Enlightenment or in Europe. Yeah. Probably because the conditions were such that people were freed to think uh, in ways that they hadn't before. But other societies also had great works. I am open to reading those and I am open to teaching those, but I'm not open to like then needing to sort of downplay everything else because I think this is an old fashioned idea, but I think we're all human beings <laughs> and therefore, you know, the cultural heritage of humanity belongs to all of us. So I don't need to downplay so called white people and their ideas and I don't also don't need to downplay other cultures and their ideas in fact I do bring my own like you know I, I grew up with um, you know jibway culture obviously mixed with mainstream culture it's not possible not to because cultures are dynamic um but I do teach about the way the worldview that I grew up with and I don't teach it like you have to believe this it's just a different way of seeing things they can help you actually to think critically about received wisdom. Um, you know, so you can, I can draw from a huge range of outlooks and I don't have to, just because people are losing their minds in the public sphere, go to these extreme positions like, oh, in the past, you know, women, there were matriarchal societies or like, oh, um, we need to stop teaching dead white men. Well, look, dead white men have a lot to, had a lot to teach while they were alive at the time i suppose lots of them. <laughs> uh the people <laughs> for instance you know um the, the it, 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 in a way it winds up being a bit racist because you deny the heritage of for instance the enlightenment to people with darker skin because you're saying well that doesn't really belong to you but it does belong to all
1: of us yeah you actually see this you actually see this a lot in classical music so you often hear um you know, educators in, in high school saying, well, we can't really get, you know, urban uh, black and brown kids to listen to Mozart because, you know, I mean, what what does Mozart do for them? You know, so that, so they, they teach them rap music, you know, whereas I believe, and I think as you were just saying, that, that these sorts of uh, artworks, uh, they, they belong to humanity, not just to a certain race of people. You
0: yeah, know, and it goes the other way too, like there are lots of indigenous artists <clears throat> who want to make art of all kinds, but find it very difficult to sell anything that isn't like polar bears, right? So this becomes an issue. And then on the other hand, there's a more recent development where I was, you know, I'm part of like this Facebook group for my reserve. And uh, I like, I'm, I don't know, part of some other First Nations Facebook groups. And like every now and then they'll be like celebrating indigenous designers. And over time there's, you see now a, a disclaimer, this designer only sells to indigenous people. Um, so now you're like condemned to being other and different forever, um, and if you want to be a mainstream designer, well, you're screwed now. Like, because <laughs> no one can wear. And like, I've got a beautiful pair of mukluks that I got from, like my um my aunt makes these. She to own a craft shop in our reserve. They're really beautiful. I remember wearing them. While I was teaching this student, looking at me a bit funny, and I had to like reassure him. Oh, it's okay that I'm wearing these. Like, like he's looking at me like are you racially pure enough to be working like that? that's the kind of direction <laughs> that we're going in i think that i that's... know he was a
2: cishet white guy i just know it i know that that's who it was
0: <laughs> probably regrettably it's always um... me and
2: my brethren who are most worried about whether you're pure enough you know we're always like i think it's 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 like making up for he knows he's already in the in the Kill zone, so he's got to go like externalize and say, Now I've, I've got to be the biggest white knight on campus, otherwise, I'm out.
0: <laughs> well, the thing <laughs> is, like, as a human being, you can appreciate that these are beautiful you know, that the beadwork is gorgeous, that they're the mm-hmm. like rabbit fur is soft and court, you know, uh, and that you've made this beautiful object, um, that you've sort of, you know, as a human being. We are we we work on the world. We make things, and and when we do that, we realize our humanity. It's like the most human thing that you can do, and to share that with other people, um, is is really great. And to say that you can only share it with particular people, is to condemn people to particularity. And I think takes us backwards. Now, of course, there's a whole argument about like these big brands that will rip off indigenous designs, and then people are wearing them. And I think that what winds up happening there is a misplaced um distrust of capitalism for its sort well its universalism ironically um that it tends to sort of take things that were particular and massify them this sort of romantic reaction to capitalism i think that critique then gets sort of bound up with some um, these this more particular critique about um you know designers and cultural appropriation and that sort of thing which i think is more it's more of a, a confused kind of anti-consumerist, romantic anti-capitalism that then gets bound up with our sort of current culture wars over race and ethnicity and so on.
1: Well, you you mentioned that you're Canadian, and I'd like to know is is Canada the wokest place on earth?
0: Jesus Christ, it might be. It's unbearable. I I find it harder, harder to go back there. I don't know. It's 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 pretty. I don't know. It's neck and neck with New Zealand. I think. Oh, yes,
2: um, good yes. good call. Yeah. Matt, yeah. very good call. We are, I think we're third in, we might be coming up the rear, you know, but uh, in Australia, but but New Zealand and Canada. Uh, tell us about Canada. Well how did it get this way?
0: I'm not entirely sure, but I, you know, I remember when i was I was an undergraduate, I said I studied sociology and anthropology. Um, I graduated in two thousand and seven, my undergraduate degree. And I was really woke. Like what you would consider woke now, definitely hundred percent. And, um, oh, thank God. And like, I, when I was in Canada, no one ever questioned anything that I said. So I would just spout this bullshit. And it was just like, I have this, <laughs> this special knowledge that other people do not have. And it is my, now it is my birthright, my right for having gone through this, that I will now administer to the problems of society that you plebs because you don't have this, this knowledge you know, that you need. And I think my whole educational trajectory has been like a coming home. Where like I was sort of like shaken out of, you know, when I was like 16, 17, I um, probably was much more like aspirational, um, much more materialist. And going to university kind of shook that out of me and uh, t- gave me this sense that the masses were the problem. And as I said, that I would ha- now have this knowledge that I could administer to them. And over time, and a long period of like argument and questioning and confront confrontation with other people that I very much disagreed, I began to change my mind, and I began to see like a certain wisdom of the masses, <laughs> and I, and a certain wisdom that I had before it was beat out of me, and that I learned that you know all this stuff about like anti-consumerism and that was like the correct position to have, and the masses were all just too like greedy and acquisitive and all this stuff, and I was like. Well, actually, you know, living in squalor was pretty shite. And um, what's wrong with n- wanting nice floors in my house and <laughs> you know? And I'm, you know, uh, what is it, Bill Haywood? You know, nothing is too nothing is too good for the working class. And the, this kind of like understanding this desire that people had was actually um, a sign of civilization that you want more. The sign of the the acquisitiveness of humanity is a sign of our fundamental progressiveness. Um, and, and, you know, but how did I come out of that? Well, I went to go do a PhD in the UK and I remember the moment actually. <laughs> it was a, I went to a conference, first conference I'd ever really been to. And I was saying my stupid crap that I usually say, uh, you know, at the bar after the conference. And someone just looked at me and they were like, that's wrong that's you know you're talking nonsense and into this this and this and i was like shocked because <laughs> before that everyone just patted me on the back oh well done you you're thinking good job <laughs> you're thinking differently <laughs> than the masses you know uh, and that was that was good enough for some stupid reason i don't know and uh and no one had ever challenged me seriously and my first instinct was to get mad and i kind of went back to my hotel room and i thought about it and i plotted <laughs> I wanted to be right because <laughs> I'm extremely stubborn. And the more that I read and the more that I looked into it, the more I realized that this person was right and I was wrong.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: And uh, yeah, so then that's been like kind of my intellectual development was that I don't know why. Like I just we were just too damn polite in Canada to challenge each other. <laughs> Or, Do you I think it's
1: know. that's a rare experience to be confronted just once and then to then I guess go on this journey of of self discovery and then find out that you were wrong because a lot of people would double down and just you and know, write and write white fragility yeah yeah there you go
0: there's some things that I double down on like there's some things that I'm certain I'm right but the more that I argue the more that I see the weaknesses in my position. And I go and I and I shore them up, right? Or I abandon some of my positions. I think that's just you know, if I can do that as a human, all people can do that for the most part. Um, I, I think it might be. It, I think it's what's happening now is that it's become a rarer and rarer thing um, because, I mean, this is just the the situation that we're in in a highly pluralistic society. You are going to come across people with different interests and different beliefs, and different constituencies. And there's pretty much no policy. I mean, there are very, very few policies that can come up that are just totally non-controversial. I mean, some group in society is going to have an issue. And so, you know, this goes back to, like, basic kind of value conflict theory from the middle of the 20th century, which I'm a big fan of. Um, And there's kind of... And it's Root and Weber as well, who I'm less of a fan of, but anyways, it's a good concept. So there are three kind of ways that you can... When you have these kinds of conflicts you can come out of them you can bargain you you can give up some things so famously abortion is one of these what we call position issue like no the the sides just cannot agree um and so there can you can wind up with this sort of stalemate like people just won't change their minds um but you you can bargain and so in the uk the policy is a result of that kind of bargaining where no side really got what they wanted fully so the people who are anti-abortion. So we have this. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but you have to have the like the, the consent, consent of doctors. It's not truly fully legal, but it is like effectively it is. Um, uh, so the the people who are anti-abortion can sort of content themselves that the society has not affirmed abortion um, as a value, and the people who are pro-abortion can sort of <laughs> um, content themselves that. It is de facto available on demand Um, with some caveats. All right. So this is bargaining and uh, that's kind of good. We've made some, some progress there. Uh, You can reach a consensus, you know, you can kind of come to an agreement when sides lay their values out on the table, you can come to some kind of consensus or, and this is what I think is happening now. And this is the Vibarian concept. You can exercise naked power when they're, can be no bargaining and no consensus when one side gets power they just crush the other and i think this is quite bad because in our societies i said very pluralistic um secular policy requires legitimacy uh, le- legitimation but policies that are founded on naked power tend to lack legitimacy and so what winds up happening is when the other side gets in power they just crush them. <laughs> you know they and so nobody actually winds up getting what they want and I have been noticing now, and actually I just posted on Twitter, we got to start talking to each other because we're losing our freaking minds. And nobody wants to talk to each other. Nobody wants to have these debates, which for me was so formative and just like getting real drunk and <laughs> arguing until they, they kick you out of the pub. That's, I think that's a great thing for humans to do um, because you eventually have to kind of let go of some positions and, and see the other side. Um, and so well, this isn't happening anymore. We, we keep saying there's more and more issues that people throw up where they say there's no debate. There can be no debate. And so we don't talk to each other. And what happens is, I know this is a bit of a cliche and everybody's been saying this, but we are becoming more polarized. And I think this isn't a good thing for a democratic society because, you know, I, I care a lot about my trans students. I have a lot of trans students and I worry a lot about what might happen i don't want to take the extreme position but there are things that we have to talk about we are talking about rather extreme changes to the way most people conceptualize things and you can say well they shouldn't think of things that way but they currently do so we've got (laughs) we've got to have a conversation and i think through that process of discourse um we can come to some kind of solution that isn't utterly freaking insane because that is where we're going right now. Like we're both sides only want the most extreme positions, which is actually going backwards from where we had been before. So I was at a, sorry for going on, this is the last anecdote I'll give, I promise. I was at a public (laughs) talk and they were on stage and um, someone was talking about Debbie Haywood. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name, Hayward Haywood. I can't remember, apologies that I can't remember her name, but you know, she's a, a, a very thoughtful trans woman who talks about the difference between sex and gender and so on and the people on stage were calling her he and like the thing is she would agree with a lot of the positions that these people were putting up right and yet they keep calling her he and then someone says well why do you call her he and they go well I think I have a duty to tell the truth and I feel like this was kind of backward because we had a tacit agreement in society that if someone was you know even if you kind of suspected or something you kind of So you were like, oh, well, this person's clearly making an effort. They want to be a she. You might screw it up sometimes. It's quite unfortunate. But you kind of, you know, said what you thought when you saw the Mm. person. This was, you know, and I recognize this was kind of an issue because people were trying to pass and they couldn't always pass. And that was it's quite difficult for a lot of people. But there was kind of a tacit agreement in society. And now we're going back even on that. Even on that sort of like basic kind of like how you present is Because that's how it works for m- with most people. Like how you present is what people will say. Um, and now we're going back even on that. I want to know what's in your pants.
2: <laughs> before
0: I get the pronoun, or like what you were born with, or, it's just, I think that's a bit backward, actually. So I don't feel the need to take these kinds of extremes. And I think actually the fact that we are now doing that is the result of this naked power approach where no one will talk to each other and we just seek to crush the other side.
2: Well, I have a concrete example from your work, actually, because you know, in the in that the the gender critical space or the trans space or whatever you want to call it, uh, there's a lot of criticism of of Owen Jones, and I see a lot of clips of him online saying this and that, and then and I maybe had ingested a lot of this, and then I watched a conversation that you had with Owen Jones, and I was embarrassed about how much I loved hearing him speak at length, you know, discoursing. With you, um, away from that adversarial online uh, tribalism, it was, and so this was a, I think, a great example of. I think we need more of exactly what you just said. I kind of want to speak to Owen. I want to get him on our show. I was like, oh wow, this is great. Like, I felt like I was embarrassed that I had bought into the. Um,
1: the you I, wrote him of,
2: off. Well, some of our listeners actually will be will will be hot under the collar about what I'm saying right now, <laughs> but uh, I stand by it.
0: Yeah, I want to talk to like the best people on an issue, on any issue. Like, uh, you know, I, I want to hear the best version of an argument. Like, I don't come to a position lightly. You know, it takes me a long time to decide what I think of something. Like, I am an avowed Marxist. We'll run for the hills now. Um, but
2: we're gonna we'll, we'll get to that.
0: <laughs> I didn't come to that position in a knee jerk way. In fact, even as a like a super woke kid, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I didn't call myself a Marxist. I was only smart en- smart enough to know that I was dumb enough <laughs> not to use that word that I-, I shouldn't use that. And it was only after I did like reading capital reading groups and debating endlessly and also reading like Austrian economics, Schumpeter. I like Ayn Rand, by the way. I really like Atlas Shaw. I mean, it's a terrible book, but I I like the people who are criticizing the romantic anti-capitalist. I hate romantic anti-capitalism too, just as much as Rand does. But it's through this process of like questioning and looking at the other side, looking at what I thought were some of the best empirical studies, I kind of decided I think this is probably correct in terms of what's uh, an understanding of what's happening in capitalism. That was the decision that I came to. So I I want to, I, I can't make up my mind unless I hear the other side. And in fact, one of my favorite books, so there's a thing called the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's value theory. And there's a debate book where it's like all the different sides of this debate, every chapter is them just rowing down and they start getting like angry and bitter and stuff. But but it's them like having it out with each other to figure out, is this the correct way to understand the world? And it matters a lot if it is the correct way. So it's just like, Oh, I'm going to adopt this position because I don't want to get flamed online. Like, if, it matters that you understand the economics of a situation well, because you when a, a crisis hits, for instance, this is this is devastating for humanity. And We got to figure out how to deal with stuff like that. It, it matters that we get to the truth. So, I, I want to talk to people, and I and I want to talk like I talked to James Lindsay yesterday. Mm. Like, um, yeah. I just posted on uh, this my my most recent podcast was talking to James Lindsay. And I knew the people would want me to have him on and be like, you know, throw down and have this debate. But I also knew that the more interesting thing is actually where we agree. There are obvious ways in which we disagree. And I actually had a really lovely, pleasant conversation with him. And he's a nice guy. (laughs) Like (laughs) like, absolutely hates, you know, communism and so on. Uh, There are things that he hates about Marxism or Marxists, are things that i also can't stand and the things that give him pause about the idea of marx's idea of how society changes into socialism also give me pause because i am realistic and serious and i worry about the future i'm not you no know, the soviet union i'm not gonna say the soviet union was like the worst thing that ever happened to humanity um but it wasn't good <laughs> um You know, and I, I, if I'm being serious, we have to learn from the past and I need to learn also from critics and I need to listen and I need to be ready to be wrong. And actually, as it turns out, we agreed on quite a lot. And I think these are kinds of fruitful conversations to have instead of just trying to like, oh, show each other up and look how cool I am and and look, I'm going to own this person. How stupid.
1: Well, seeing as we're we're on this topic, perhaps you could outline some of the features of Marxism because I, I know we've got listeners who are like, you know, I don't understand Marxism. I, I know I'm supposed to hate it, but I don't know what it is. But maybe you could, could could school school us on, on on some of the features of Marxism.
0: Sure. So I think the thing that appeals to me most about Marx's work is his understanding of how capitalism works. Um, and so this is the kind of thing that can irk me a little when you see people talking online where like Marxism doesn't work. And I'm like, what are you on about? Because <laughs> Marxism is an understanding of capitalism. That's what capital is about. It's an engagement with um, political economists of Marx's time, um, trying to understand like what is it that lies at the heart of this society. And he he does what's called an imminent critique. So he takes people at their word. He he takes the he doesn't start with like greed or human frailty. He starts with the same rational liberal subject as Adam Smith does, for instance. And he shows how, even if people act perfectly rationally, we still run into these problems, crises, and so on. Um, and he tries to explain why that is. And um, so he uh, comes up with this idea that the value, well, I'm going to go too deeply into this now, but the value of, of products in society um, is comes down to the socially necessary labor time that goes into, on average, that goes into producing them. And this thing is like, Adam Smith also had a labor theory of value. Labor theories of value go back to, well, probably John Locke, but maybe probably before that. Um, but th- he kind of added in and solved the puzzles that Smith and Ricardo couldn't solve. Um, so, like Ricardo, for instance, was trying to tie uh, value to things like corn; they need to like peg it to something. And um, Mark and and Mark showed that well, they were kind of figuring it out; they were on their way there, but. This is, this is what's going on. And he called Smith and Ricardo true economists because they were coming up at a time when capitalism was new and nascent and absolutely revolutionary, which he agreed with. He saw capitalism as a positive revolutionary force. Um, and he, he said they were true scientists because uh, when capital... Well, first of all, they were just literally trying to figure out what is going on here, what is different in the system than what came before it. But also when capitalism produced wealth... They championed it, and when it didn't, they didn't. They never apologized for it, and that distinguished them from the vulgar economists, who began to apologize for capitalism. Um, and he says famously in the Communist Manifesto, um, "Capitalism is not an absolute system for the production of wealth, but at a certain point begins to fetter it, begins to hold humanity back." So that's the the famous line. Um, uh, It produces a situation in all earlier that in all earlier epochs would have been an abstraction, a crisis of overproduction. And he doesn't mean overproduction in terms of use values, like useful things, because how can you have that when you're people starving in the world? He means that overproduction in the sense of what can be sold, which is absurd uh, this should be wonderful. This should be great for humanity that lived in toil and suffering for such a long time. Now we can produce this wealth in abundance, but it becomes a bad thing. And he says, this shows us it is not an absolute system for the creation of wealth, but begins to destroy it. So in crises, for instance, we have destruction of wealth. You have the situation where you don't have any bread because you got fired from the bread factory. Or you, like, um, you like, um, what is it? Uh, John Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath, where he has these like vivid depictions of like pouring lion on pigs during the Great Depression because they couldn't be sold profitably while people were starving, children were dying, and stuff like that. You have this kind of situation, and Marx is trying to understand how that happens. And he's absolutely a champion of wealth and abundance. As if we could figure out how to unlock that from this this step, this wonderful step that capitalism has taken us on, if we can, we need to move beyond that. To what it is making possible, and um, if you read, so that's in uh, just in the Communist Manifesto, but the, um, the Grundrisse. We just read Notebook Seven on sublation media. We were a reading group. If you read that, the fragment on machines, um, he's absolutely giddy about the possibilities of you know what happened. That's what capitalism did is like you you know he has this. Um, idea of sublation which is what we call ourselves sublation media where you have like primitive communism or whatever um where you have a more direct relationship as a human being with what you produce in the world so like i'm i'm, I'm a human being i'm creative i want to like c- kill a beast so i fashion a bow and arrow and i kill the beast i consume it becomes part of me <laughs> and i give it to you know i'm whatever um so it's subject object are more or less directly linked um, subject being me, a human object being the world. They come together when I create something and consume it. Um, I realize myself and my creativity and so on. But Marx is not a fan of primitive communism. He doesn't want us to go back to that. Because what capitalism does, it breaks down that process. It alienates us. It separates us from the object of our creation. And people, everybody always stops there. They're like, oh yeah, Marx talked about alienation. We're, we're alienated from our species being. We're alienated from our the things that we create. That's so bad. No, <laughs> he goes further. He goes further Does it, it's we we become separated from our production. But as that happens, every aspect of the production process becomes so refined, so automated, so efficient um, that they start to come back together, right? Where you you think it and you create it, just like in primitive communism, except in a higher form. Um, that's the sublation. So it, it's it's you destroy that that creativity but you like because you know you're to get there you have to be like an appendage of the machine for 200 years but through that process you then are able to realize your creativity in a higher form um so for instance if you think about music you know you might have played music throughout history you would have fashioned all sorts of instruments played it for people directly and then the music industry so I've skipped ahead quite a lot, but just bear with me.
2: <laughs> that was a Stanley Kubrick cut, Dawn of Man, just bang, <laughs> we're in a spaceship.
0: It, it separates this, right, into all of these different things. All Every sound becomes refined and so on. Um, you know, you had these music studios that were very, very expensive and everything was like fine-tuned. And, and, and now people make masterpieces in their bedrooms with uh, a laptop. This is this is that separation and then the coming together that capitalism uh, makes possible and does indeed produce. But then this becomes a bad thing for capitalism because you're like, oh no, like it was very hard to profit from that unless we can find some way to like put artificial walls up around it or whatever. So capitalism is always doing this; it's always creating this abundance that it then has trouble holding onto or or confining. So Marx, again, in the Communist Manifesto. I hate to quote the Communist Manifesto because people are like, oh, it's the most basic text, but just read it, and you will. If you actually read it, like the most basic things are there. So he says, um, the capitalist is like the sorcerer who is unable to control the powers he's conjured up from the netherworld, and this is it. Like you, you conjure up such extreme abundance, such wealth, and then you scramble to try to control it. and you, and, and capitalism has a lot of trouble doing that. So what should free us, which should be a wonderful thing, turns around and becomes a bad thing. You know, people are talking about AI now as like. Possibly producing all this calamity and so on, but it should be a good thing, and it is a good thing that you we have this incredible technology. And I'm not talking about like just chatbots and so, you know, you know that, that all the different kinds of uses that people are putting this new computing power to are fantastic for humanity. It frees us from toil, um, but this then becomes a bad thing within capitalism. So what Marx is talking about is he's an incredibly progressive thinker. And, and he's like, what made me a Marxist, I think, makes me continue to be a Marxist, is that I am more libertarian, even than libertarians, because I want freedom, I want wealth, I want abundance for humanity, I want to free what capitalism creates but can't hold on to, even when capitalism destroys it, even when capitalism tells me I can't have it, I will still demand it. this um, this, is this, and, and I think what happened was, so this is the historical Marx, this is what's in his writings, He's, t- he's very much an individualist. He talks about egoism as the basis of communism in, in German ideology. While Engels, Engels says this in a letter to Marx when he read Max Stirner's work. He says, any egoist would become a communist of necessity. If you are truly an individualist, then you know you will demand... You don't, well, like, or, let me think, like Oscar Wilde, for instance, in The Soul of Man Under Socialism. He says, the great thing about socialism is that it would free us from the sort of necessity of having to live for others because like, that's what you do now. You spend most of your life living for some asshole so he can go on live on a yacht. I want to live my whole life for me. And we, and we have that possibility now. Like by freeing people, like because I don't have to sit on a log and pound millet for eight hours a day, or like go fetch water. I've got like technology that does this for me. I am freer now to be an individual. That is what Marx is talking about. He wants to free that completely. Not completely, there's a certain amount of necessity that will always be with us. Um, but it will be a smaller, the idea is that it can be a much smaller part of the day during which we will you know, have to do whatever necessary work drudgery that people don't want to do, like cleaning sewers or whatever. But the rest of the time could be free. And, that, and capitalism produces that possibility. We already do that. We already work only like an hour to reproduce the stuff we need to survive or two hours or whatever. You know, our, our, what would cover our wages that we then go and spend in the supermarket. Um, and then we, we spend the rest of the time working for somebody else. Um, we could spend that time working for ourselves. So that's that's the idea. It's like radically individualist, radically uh, um, uh, pro-industrialism, pro-wealth, pro-abundance. And what happened was in the fifties, really as late as the as early as the forties, and probably before that. Um, but definitely in, in the fifties, you had in the sort of post-war boom so-called Marxists began to reconceptualize wealth as the problem instead of the solution. That it was bad for your soul. That it made you too greedy and acquisitive. But if you read Marx, like he talks about greed as a powerful force in our societies. That in earlier societies, it screwed people because they didn't have a way of of uh, investing back into production. So when they would go out, and, you know, they had a bit of money, you know, money was circulating. So you're like, oh, money is the potentiality of all things. If I have this money, I can have everything. So you go out and you you know, plunder and you bring back all this gold. And it just screwed everybody because it it caused inflation. All that happened was slaves got more expensive. In our society, that's not the case. When you pursue money, abstract symbols of wealth, you do produce wealth accidentally. (laughs) It's an option. You're producing this abstract symbol of wealth, money, that's what you want when you invest in production. You don't give a shit about shoes or whatever you're producing, but you do produce an enormous number of shoes very, very cheaply. Um, so uh, he wasn't criticizing people for being greedy. He says greed is an incredible productive force within capitalism. Um, but then this starts to get lost, and it becomes about capitalism is the, it's the problems of abundance, and um, mm-hmm. there's too much individualism or whatever it might be. And this becomes actually. How
2: did we get to the point where you're probably already almost there? But how did we get to the point where the word Marxist is is basically a slur? You know what I mean? Like I mean, I mean, even um, uh, James Lindsay uses the word fairly liberally. You know what I mean? Who you've just interviewed. So this is out there right now. So why? I mean, the way you talk about it, it sounds. Quite, insp- I'm I'm sort of jazzed up, and it's quite inspirational. So, well, what's what's the disconnect?
0: I think the disconnect happens, and I uh, I hate to be like feed into this, but there a real wrong turn was taken with large portions of the new left, partially the Frankfurt School, <laughs> um, uh, but de- definitely the new left. But I think also, and what's left out of this story. Okay, I have to give you two answers here, and I don't have a pen. Usually, I write things down. (laughs) There's sort of two two things going on here. One is that the the left kind of took this turn and uh, began to give up on liberalism. And there's like this sort of like Stalin, this like residual Stalinism, and this hatred for liberalism. Instead of recognizing that Marxism is a continuation and sublation of liberalism, it's making it real in society. It's it's a critique of liberal rights that cannot possibly be realized within capitalism. Um, so it's this kind of like anti-liberalism and anti, like just this reaction to capitalism as opposed to a sublation of capitalism becomes really powerful. And the second thing is that capitalism itself lost faith in itself and began to kind of superficially resemble some of these new left critiques and indeed took them on as, as ideological clothing. Um, and so I'll come back to that ideological clothing for capitalism in decline. But on that first point, like how does Marxism become a slur? <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly how it happens. I again I was at a conference and uh, I was you know, chatting and um, there was a young person there, real keen, and she's talking about uh, we're talking about free speech and she's like, can't she could not understand why you would need freedom of speech in your own home. And and, I, and she's like, and, and we were talking about like in the UK, there's a racist slur that some working class people use for convenience stores. Um, and I'm not going to say it, obviously, but um, I'm not even to- I never even really heard it before. I wasn't totally familiar with what it was. But anyway, and she and I was like, well, like in the privacy of your own home and when you don't have the intent to hurt anybody, there's no pro and just in the privacy of your own home, whatever, say what you want. And she was like, well, wh- why do people need to say racist things? Like, why, why do you even say that? And Good <laughs> I was point. like, Good, great that, point. Great is that, point. that stupid, like, well, why do you need to do that is always the, the stupid answer of the authoritarian who doesn't want to admit. Well, if, that you, that, well,
2: if you've got nothing to hide, then, uh, I mean, just, you, you know, if we spy on you with your webcam while you're in bed with your wife, what's the difference? You've got nothing to hide.
0: Exactly. And it's like, well, because a lot of people will think like all sorts of crazy things. And then you have a discussion with each other, whatever um <laughs> and like it's it's it doesn't really affect anybody but i don't even need to go into why like but it's in the like do you really want a, a world in which you you create and avow the most obvious dystopia 1984 um i was going to say as soon, you, as soon as you said as as as
2: as the story i pictured the the video screen on the wall hidden behind the painting right.
0: <laughs> why? Why do you need to write I hate Big Brother? Like why? Why do you need to do that? Anyway, yeah, um right. and then as we have this conversation, she proudly exclaims that she's a Marxist. And I went, "Oh." Because Marx famously was in favor of freedom of the press. You know, he he talked about how like he desires this freedom like the like the desire the deepest desire of the soul, you know? And how, how far we've traveled that this student clearly had not read anything seriously could say, well, that's a Marxist position. You know, she just off the top, oh, I'm a Marxist, right? Oh, I'm I'm learned And I was like, Jesus Christ, how embarrassing for all of us. So that Marxism becomes this kind of stand-in for uh, at these complete repudiations of his ideas and like anti-liberalism. Um, partially through the new left, partially because of Stalinism and, and, and all these sorts of things, that they became very, very anti-liberal. Um, and then the second thing, as I said, was that, um, you know, capitalism begins to lose faith in itself. Um, and so you have a period of decline um, in which, you know, the idea that economic growth was going to be a solution to all these social problems, um, starts to be done away with. So there was this idea, you know, famously, like Rostow's stages of growth, where you, you know, you have so- that all societies are going to pass through these stages, and you go from like, um, you know, basically toil to these advanced consumer societies. And as you do that, you have a convergence of values, and eventually, we're all just going to live in these like advanced liberal societies. All you need to do is kind of put the correct economic policies in place. And there will be like peace and love and joy in the world. (laughs) And, you know, this obviously uh, didn't happen. And so, you know, all the way, you know, in the 1960s, you start seeing people in power questioning this. And they didn't question it because they were like, oh, you know, growth is great and wealth is wonderful and so on. But I'm kind of concerned about the soul. No, they questioned it because growth liberalism wasn't working. Um, that societies were not in the developing world, were not developing along the same path that um, liberal Western, Western countries were um, developing. Um, and so growth liberalism was abandoned. This idea of like capitalism is this dynamic system that's gonna you know, raise living standards. It was abandoned not because um, people had a change of heart, but because it wasn't happening. And this is what I talk about in my first book, that um, part of the reason why there was this shift, this attempt amongst very well-to-do people to shift away from wealth and abundance and to sort of downplay all of that um, was because of a a dim awareness of stagnation within capitalism. So people like idiots who don't know anything about capitalism think that it's just growth. That's what it is. It just grows and grows. What a terrible system that makes us so rich. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's awful. We're just going to get richer and richer and richer forever. Oh, terrible. And oh, well, maybe it'll destroy the planet. But if that was the case, I mean, no reason to be against capitalism. Fine. Like, I don't know, let's do something about the environment. But like, if it's, it, you know, totally solvable within capitalism, I think. The issue is that capitalism is both a dynamic system that needs to grow and also runs up against limits, internal limits to its own growth. You have you know, a dampening down of incentives to invest and actually produce things in society. Like like you have, uh, and this is again one of Marx's ideas that fall in the rate of profit, but it wasn't his idea. The idea that profit rates tend to fall leading to stagnation and destructive crises was taken for granted in the 19th century. It was a puzzle that needed solving. And Marx saw himself as trying to solve that puzzle or having solved that puzzle. He didn't create the idea of declining profit rates. And since then, um, this is what I was saying before I read empirical studies and I was pretty convinced by them. I think that um, this idea that there is a declining profit rate is probably correct. And I think that this is perceived by people in power. But just like John Stuart Mill, who Marx calls like a vulgar economist, When he saw that, when he saw capitalism undermining its own dynamism, its own ability to produce well, he's tried to harmonize it. He tried to say, well, you know, maybe it's this harmonious stationary state where we just reproduce the same thing forever and ever, to which capitalism is naturally advancing. And Marx is like, no, you're just harmonizing what is an incredibly destructive force. Um, And so I think that's what's happening now, is that people in power see that capitalism is undermining its own growth and stagnating and they're trying to harmonize that and they're like oh it's fine you'll own nothing and be happy you know you know it's it's don't worry we'll have a sharing and caring economy and all this bullshit and and it's their own limited elitist utopia in which they still get to live the lives that they like and us plebs get less, you know, and we won't clog up their beaches. This is what James Lindsay said that I completely agreed with. And uh, it's actually one of my own talking points that I was surprised to <laughs> hear come out of his mouth was that, you know, they the those in power, they can't stand when the those things that were special and particular to them get massified and the plebs get to enjoy them too. They want to go back to a world in which, you know, we will live only on as much as is serviceable to our masters and we'll be happy doing it. And I, like that gets mixed up with Marxism, but it's completely antithetical to what Marx actually said. Although it does, I don't know. Through like, I don't know, sixty years of quasi-Marxist academic theory um, has become the sustaining ideology of capitalism. But if you actually read Marx, it's very contrary to what he was he was actually arguing. Because. The, but, they see struggle and they're just like class struggle, which is like so important. They're like, well, maybe we're just scared of class. We'll put the word gender in. and Well, maybe we'll just get, no, it it has to be class. It's like, it's a, whole, it's a whole, it's not like you can just like take out the parts and like fit something else in. No, then you come up with like, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's what the Nazis did, right? They were like, they, they called themselves socialists because they superficially took on all this. Well, first of all, because the language of socialism Um, was powerful at the time and everybody wanted to call themselves socialists I think it's what's happening now with the word left Um, so like um, oh who is it Uh, Oswald Spengler said oh what is this call it socialism whatever what do I care what do words matter it's the same kind of thing like now people want to call themselves leftists um, who have espoused ideas that are totally contrary to you know the left side of the French Revolution for instance that are much more sort of the left wing of what was the right wing romantic romantic reaction to the enlightenment. Um, so yeah, anyways, go on. You wanted to ask me a question.
1: <laughs> Just to pick up on something you said there, like, like this, this idea of, of rich people or sort of the new aristocratic class, uh, trying to shut people out of particular places, or, you know, they get annoyed when, when they see, you know, you know, I guess the masses can now say have have travel, you know, world travel. You, do you think that's that's the reason why a lot of people like, uh, you know, even like the royal family in the UK jumping on the bandwagon of environmentalism as a way of, you know, of separating themselves again because that, they can offset their their air travel quite easily, whereas, you know, us plebs can't do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, romantic anti-capitalism is, um, Marx writes in the Grundrisse, his notebooks, um, that um, the romantic viewpoint, um, you know, capitalism has never got past the romantic viewpoint and it will accompany it as its legitimate antithesis up to its bitter end. What that means is that this kind of questioning is um, capitalism's legitimate antithesis. It's, it's like confines of acceptable critique. Um, And so it's this, as I said, this questioning of things as it becomes massified, which ironically becomes a driver um, for new rounds of capitalist accumulation. Um, So people will, well, just in a basic way, like they will, they're constantly searching for something new, some new experience that the plebs haven't destroyed yet, this kind of thing. Um, So that's, that's, you know, that's always been part of capitalism. I think the other part of it is what i was saying before um that there is this dim realization that there is stagnation within capitalism and there's an attempt to harmonize that um and to say no this is just this is just it's not a limit to capitalism it's an external limit and we all just have to accept it um and and that sounds kind of leftist for some reason um well if you go back to like the french revolution where left and right initially came from this is much more of a right-wing position because the right wing um was about you know order now it's now like law and order become like safety that's the new sort of but what about safety and well-being this is safety and well-being of the new law and order basically um um so if you go back that far these are very very right-wing ideas but they become um kind of Quasi-leftist sounding when the left has lost that kind of dynamism when it's given into this notion that um, capitalism has actually gone too far whereas for Marx it hasn't gone far enough um, and so no one's really been and and of course there was like this internal questioning um, where people academics argued that um, the fault the falling fall in the rate right of profit is a myth that it, it does it's not actually true in fact there's a tendency for profits to rise. And so on the left, people think, oh, well, the real problem is that, you know, bankers are too greedy and corporations are too greedy and they're just not sharing out the wealth. as opposed to the fact that there is less, as a percentage of rate, there's less profit to be made, which means that um, people have less incentive to invest. So there's that critique no longer exists on the left. We're not able to make it anymore because supposedly it's being discredited and forgotten. I think I'm probably one of like seven People, seven Marxists, who are like, no, the falling rate of profit is extremely important and it explains a lot of what's going on here. Um, but I think those in power do do uh, recognize that. But because they can't see beyond the present, this is just the best of all possible worlds. There's no alternative. What can they do? They have to say this. This is a real limit. It's an ecological limit. We all just have to accept it.
2: But Ashley, I love talking about this. This is this is the left. I. I want back. I want this. This is material. This is profit. This is this is the bottom line. This is about like you know, I don't know the fat controller, you know, uh, and how much he's screwing us all and all that stuff. And and but instead, the the left seems more concerned. I mean, you haven't mentioned Marx's kinks at all, uh, and and which is, I mean, pretty much all people would be talking about now. They'd be like talking about um what Marx uh like to get up to at night whether he was a furry or whether he was a power bottom or something like that you know <laughs> so i mean this this hasn't come up at all I, I which is great you know well i
0: here's the thing like i think angles was a little bit more uh, kind of going in that direction but there's this great anecdote and every time i bring up this anecdote no one believes me so i'm gonna Next, next time I talk about it, I'm just going to give the source, but I've never, I haven't been able to find, <laughs> refine the source, but it is true. <laughs> Take my word for it. Well, you can go look it up yourselves. <laughs> but Marx famously, he went to Paris uh, uh, when he was um, sort of in exile. And there's this anecdote where he kind of meets these communists, which would be the equivalent of today's hippies. And he's and they're talking about, like, free love and stuff, and he's kind of disgusted by them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. He should be. He should be like, you guys are gross. Like, get you know, get back to work or, and, you know, building my – my uh, the beautiful vision of the future and not just thinking about your, your genitals.
0: Yeah, and, like, Lenin complained about that as well, that young people were very – at the time, very obsessed about sex and that sort of thing. They'd lost sight of, like, materialist analysis. I think, mean, yeah, they just – Um, I think, um, I don't know, this sort of inability to look beyond the present, I think leads to this deep desire to find fulfillment now. Right. And I think that comes up, I don't know, I suppose it comes up in like well-to-do classes in the 19th century. Um, and there's, uh, there's a, like a powerful side to that as well. Like there's a progressive side to that too. I won't deny that. But it also kind of speaks to a certain amount of presentism when that's the only thing, and you see that as the lead for your movement is like an individual, uh, like sexual emancipation. So we, I always joke like but 20 socialism. Twenty years in one ago, part-
2: though, but you you would remember being politically active twenty years ago and, and being on the left, and and if you like, you were out at a pub and and this came and sex stuff came up, like everyone there in your gang would have been cool with it. They would have been like, oh, yeah, okay. But it wouldn't have been at the top of the newsletter. Like it wouldn't have been, you know, you wouldn't have had to wear badges about it and talk about it endlessly. And, you know, like it, you would have been marching against the war and a range of other things and not necessarily just saying, I'm, you know, I'm non-binary.
0: Yeah. Um, it, yeah, so it's become sort of the headline of uh, a movement when um, – it seems as though anything beyond the self is impossible. Um, And I said, like, the the basis of communism is this kind of individualism, that is this this freedom of the individual, but that can only be fully realized when we fully socialize production from a Marxist perspective. So capitalism already socializes production. Um, Capitalism is a highly socialized system of production. What that means is that how we produce things is given over to society so you don't have to like go and grow your coffee beans dry them you know maybe even run them through the intestinal tract of a goat or whatever <laughs> you don't need to do any of that uh you can go buy them in the shop put them in a coffee machine press a button grind them up if you've got a fancy schmancy machine uh and like that's an enormous amount of your time that you no longer have to spend reproducing a cup of coffee that you can now spend on something else um so we are free within capitalism but we're not fully free we're freer than we've ever been you know you're not you know in, in feudalism you were born a peasant you died a peasant that was pretty much it um and now you are free to you know be born whatever and you can become an entrepreneur now not everybody can do that by definition some people will be workers and some people will um employ people That's how capitalism works um and so only in this full socialization production which capitalism itself is tending toward we just haven't figured out how to liberate that yet we've never figured out how to move beyond the market even though the capitalism itself is moving beyond the market um we've not figured out how to do that and so it's a big issue and we got to sort this out and we tried and we failed (laughs) like the USSR was never able to move beyond the law of value, that is how things are, are valued, um, not subjectively. I mean, like the economic basis of value in capitalism. Like they were taking price indices. They had to steal price indices from capitalist states to figure out how to price things. So they were never really, and they, and they knew that too. They knew this, So there were like books produced in the Soviet Union called the law of value in the Soviet Union. So we've never been able to move beyond that. It's a big issue. Um, like capitalism is producing something else. Um, but we are not able to take control of it and therefore might produce something much, much worse. So this is the whole neo-feudalism thesis that some people are starting to um, talk about. It's producing something else, but there's no human hand on it. There's no control over it. It's just these people harmonizing like, oh, there's all these new things are coming up, but don't worry, i will be fine. I'm still going to have my power. You're going to have your Amazon chits and it'll all be fine. <laughs> um, anyway, so th- these are like wicked issues, right? And since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've not really been able, we, it's, we've more or less imbibed the idea that there is an alternative to capitalism. And in that space, the sphere of influence becomes really small and it just becomes just here right around your body and that's it. Um, and that's where you are also invited to enact your resistance Is in your body and yourself, so that's pretty different from how human beings have historically lived. For for most of human history, the anchor for meaning was beyond the self. It was in something in the future. You know, even like for religion, you know, everything derived its meaning from something you know in the higher world than God or whatever, Um, and or like uh, even like Marxism, it was this this future oriented kind of movement. Um, But now the anchor for meaning is inside, in you. And everything, that's where truth is. That's where, you know, it's kind of also this reaction where all all that is solid melts into air. And so you search for something solid, you search for something firm, and you say, well, it's in my body, it's in myself. So you see, even in these, like, what seem to be highly constructionist kind of ideas around gender, the more that you look into them, the more they become essentialist they want to be constructions, that is, they want to say like, oh, everything is a social construct. But then um, they wind up saying, but this thing that I want is not a social construct. <laughs> so they have to say like, oh, but my identity is something intrinsic to who I am. And they can't really go any deeper than that, because that's it. That's where the anchor for meaning is. They need something solid to hold on to. Instead of like embracing this fact that all that is solid melts into air. and. Yeah, okay, if everything is a social construct that doesn't release you from anything, this means as a society, we have to decide how we're going to live. We have to decide what constructs we're going to live by, how we're going to govern ourselves. And there's nothing that can make that choice for us not our biology, nothing. I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, biology is going to determine you're going to die and like, <laughs> um, you know, women produce babies, this sort of thing. Like, th- there's a certain amount of biology that's always going to be there. But how we make sense of that, how we decide to live within that, is up to us. We have to make those kinds of decisions, which goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, that this will lead to kinds of conflicts, and we have to sort those out. Um, and our society gives us very little firm grounding with which to do that. You know, throughout most of human history, people didn't need to think about those things. It was given to them by tradition. And now we don't have that tradition. And so instead of sort of embracing that human hand on history and saying, no, it's us. It's always been us. It was never God. things." <laughs> You know, um, And now we can embrace the fact that it is us humanity that makes the rules and makes the judgments about how we're going to live. We exist in this unparalleled freedom at the same time as we have destroyed the subject capable of living in that freedom. So we, we have this idea like, oh, human beings are just a plague on the planet. We're just animals. And that's like a progressive thing to say. Oh, how are we actually different from animals? I don't know. I'm fucking talking to you right now. That's a pretty big difference. <laughs> yeah. have <laughs> a highly complex symbolic order around myself. Pretty big difference. Instead of embracing that, we have this very weak idea of of what it means to be human. So in that situation, you will search for these kinds of forms of solidity in the self, in your identity, in your whatever um, that seem really firm, um, but they will also melt into air.
1: Well, actually, we're very mindful of time that we we have pages of questions we we haven't got to. So, please please say you'll come back sometime so we can we can dive into those ones. But perhaps before we let you go, can you can you tell us about your podcast and and what your vision is for it?
0: Sure. So I um <laughs> it's funny because I just uh, interviewed Simon Evans um the other day and. I was really nervous because that's my only my second interview for my own podcast. And I read this book, you know, as I always have to do a literature review on everything. Like, I can't just live my life. I got to like do a thorough <laughs> literature review and then decide how I'm going to proceed. So anyway, I read these, I read a few books about journalistic and I think things I already know because I study social media of social media. I studied the media, news media and so on. But it was interesting hearing it from the horse's mouth. Um, so I kind of thought, oh, well, I should be a journalist. And I forgot, actually, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> and I just want to talk to people. So I kind of messed up. I started talking to Simon and we were laughing, talking. having this great conversation. I was like, oh, no, I'm supposed to ask questions. Yes. <laughs> and I, I ruined the interview totally by being like, so what are you working on now? And stupid, cliche questions. <laughs> anyway, so I'm just having conversations with people who, with whom I disagree and with whom I agree. And I want to... Um, I want to test the corners and the boundaries of things that I accept, that other people accept, and I want to talk across divides because we're not talking to each other and we're all going nuts. And, that's, <laughs> and I just hate this idea that I felt it myself doing Sublation Media. I feel like because we have a, a largely very homogenous audience, I sometimes feel like Oh, maybe I shouldn't say that because I'm going to alienate people. And then I'm like, why? Why? That is so unAshley. How could I possibly be? So I felt like I need to do something more mainstream with a, a just with a hope to reaching more people, where we can talk to each other even if we have opposing views and we can be civil. And I think that's so so important. And maybe okay, sometimes we might throw down. I don't know. But I, I, I'm not that kind of person.
2: <laughs> we, we don't like that stuff. It's gross. No, like, like no. we, 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 we talk about this all the time because there's some, some of our, uh, shall we say, more successful um, competitors. Uh, you know, think they're journalists and they, 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 say stuff like, oh, I've got to push people on this and push them on that push and, and, and and challenge them. And I'm like, do you, do you? I mean, can't you just can't you just get them to say their piece and the audience can can exactly. figure it out? Exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. And that's that's. First of all, because I'm nice and I don't want to invite someone to come and talk to me and then be rude to them. I just can't. I just I can't know. possibly do that. But also I trust the audience. And I also, I want to get, and like, I might like put, like put forward the question where I'm like, well, I want to know. Well, I can hear people saying, well, what about X? You know, i put that question up. I'm not going to try to own somebody. I want to put forward the argument in its best form. And then let other people judge. So I just did a series for Sublation Media on neo-feudalism. And, neo- and I wanted to get left and right views. And I don't have a view myself. I'm just interested. I don't know what it, I have no idea. I'm, I haven't decided. So I wanted them to convince me. So I invited who I thought were some of the best figures, the most interesting figures, the popular figures to to convince me. <laughs> and I just kind of let people talk. And I, I, I said, well, what about this? What about that? And, um, and at the end you made yourself
2: the emperor in that little scenario though you're in that little diorama they've got to entertain you and you get to sit there and say you i choose you your ideas No, good
0: the thing is i still haven't decided (laughs) it's gonna take me a year so i i just and also like i the way that i am is i i kind of pick i i i hear different kinds of ideas and they make me think about other things like i don't I don't know. Everyone wants you to, like, condemn or judge or, or like, own, put forward. Own guilt. the libs.
2: Yes. Hot takes. And
0: I, I don't have a take. I'm not going to have a take. I think that they are, they, that what the, what's going on here is they are touching on some kind of transition that's happening. Now, that's it's my own thought, my own thinking to decide what that is, um, which would probably take a completely different form than, like, condemning the neo-feudal thesis, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And that, that's kind of my goal is to further well, my own. I've heard
2: Ashley's podcast. It's fantastic. I want everyone to listen to it. And she never, as she just said, it's very nuanced. It's got great guests. And she, I've never heard her just get up and say, what's the deal with all these trans toilets? You know, she doesn't do that. <laughs> so Go somewhere else for that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Where can people find you online, Ashley, if they want to engage with you?
0: Sure. So um, you can find me on Twitter at Ashley A. Frawley. I'm usually Ashley A. Frawley on everything. So YouTube, Ashley A. Frawley, Patreon, Ashley A. Frawley. I write um, every week. I write what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, the different concepts that I'm kind of using. That's all on Patreon. And then the second half of my conversations are all on Patreon as well. Because I got to eat and I got a young family, all right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Capitalism, baby. <laughs> I know. I can't. Thank you very much, Ashley.
1: Yes, thank, thank you. you. Oh,
2: wait, we got our last question. We did, we almost blew the last question.
1: Oh, yes. Ricky. Actually, we we, we we have a question we ask all of our guests at the end of the interview, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now.
0: Oh, do you know, I actually have started trying to read more for pleasure, so I'm on a, a kick of um, I really like um, histories of random objects. <laughs> <laughs> I like books with a no plot and um, so I just
2: or something or...
0: yes oh i love that like history of tea um preferably many different things so i just finished a book called medieval woman which is just totally stupid um but i it is totally plotless like everyday life of uh, a woman in the 12th century and just what it was like you know how she would go get water and like infant mortality love that kind of stuff i i want like a plotless book about Chattahoyak for instance like I just want a thoughtless book about daily life in Chattahoyak write it for me please world that's what I'm looking for right now so that's what I'm, I'm doing I'm, I'm reading about like um, a history of random objects
2: that's what I always <laughs> love to hear it no one ever says the same thing whenever we say what are you <laughs> that's reading that's true
1: that's true
2: no one ever says uh I don't know like Fifty Shades um, of Grey Or yeah or or um <laughs> Yeah, just some pot boiler or something, or, yeah. or you no, know, it never. It's always something amazing. Eat, so pray, thank, love. Yeah, well, it's, you're dating yourself there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ashley.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to The New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live The New Flesh.